everybody. Welcome back to the latest episode of Corks and Crime. I'm Heather. I'm Natalie. Um, today, we are enjoying a very yummy, pretty bottle, too. This is what caught my eye at Total Wine mm-hmm. with the label. It's sparkly. It's sparkly. I'm going to butcher it. Barasca Cava Brut Rosé. So I have had their cava, like their traditional cava that wasn't rosé, and it was so good. And it also is a very pretty label. Mm-hmm. But this was only $9.99. Wow. Right. That's and bad. They know. It's up by the register. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So. They know that they can get those mm-hmm. Brookhaven <laughs> Bettys with Just a sparkly like, pink I'm like, label. Oh, look at that pretty label. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that. They're so, no fools at Total Wine. No, they know what they're doing. But I think it's really good. It's really light. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, some, I like rosé a lot, but some rosés I feel like are very kind of strong. Do you think that? You probably don't because you're like a heavy red drinker. Right. I don't, but I love a good rosé. This is very light to me. It is super light. It's bubbly, but it's light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, but it's a great like summer drink. Oh yeah. I totally agree. I would purchase again, especially for $9.99. For $9.99, I'd purchase it every day. (laughs) So I'm a fan. Yeah, for sure. So check it out. It's a really pretty label too, but the sparkly, it'll catch your eye. And I noticed that the... The regular cava, it's like fourteen ninety nine. So I don't know why the rosé is a little bit cheaper. Maybe but. it was just like a clearance, like yeah. a flash sale they were doing at Total Wine. The flash sales always get me. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff and I have been victim to flash sales many times. Oh, me too. I'll buy something just because it's a good deal. Right. I don't need it. Right. No, I don't need that. I'm pretty sure that we are on footage at Best Buy several years ago when we're in the Apple section. Uh-huh. And, you know, Jeff had decided he wanted, like, this Kindle, but it was, like, the Mac Daddy. And I'm like, Uh that's, like, the same price as an iPad. So we have that discussion. Literally. Literally. I know that's not how you say it, but Parks and Rec, whatever. Um, The guy comes around, and he's like, oh, my gosh. We just got this email. We're having this flash sale. <laughs> so I know that they're back behind the scenes with the camera and they're like, okay, one, two, three, go. Right. They're like, go yeah. get them, go get them. And of course, <laughs> these people will definitely fall yeah, for a flash we did. sale. We bought it, flash sale. So That's now, whenever hilarious. there's like an email, it's like, hey, babe, flash sale. You know, <laughs> every That's time. really funny. So maybe it was a flash sale, but it got me every time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a sucker too. I'm yeah. a sucker for a good sale. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. anyway, check it out, Baraska. Or however you say it. I think it's Baraska. It has the double R's, which neither one of us can really roll our R's. No. Um, But I think, I I don't know how else you would say it. I think that's it. Yeah. I think you got it. Um, Okay. So are you listening to anything, watching anything good right now? Um, Yes. So I, Jonathan and I just started this series on Netflix. It's called Unorthodox. I have seen previews for it and it looks insane. It's so good. Um, It's actually based on a memoir by um her first name is deborah i don't remember her last name i should have looked that up before i started talking about it but um basically this character and they do this all in the first five minutes so i'm not really spoiling anything um but she is an orthodox jew living in new york city Mm -hmm. and she leaves and goes to berlin um just totally uproots her life and yeah and leaves and it's crazy i've learned a lot about um the orthodox jewish community watching this um that i didn't know about and like it's just a great story of bravery and i don't know i need to like do more research on how much how closely related it is to this actual person's memoir Mm -hmm. um but wow it is so 
good. I will put it on my list for sure because I'm always Ugh. looking for something like we've said before that like you know me and Jeff both can watch and yeah. enjoy because that's hard to find sometimes. I think he would really enjoy it. Okay. Jonathan at least is really enjoying okay. it. Yeah. Yeah I'll try it. I finished Never Have I Ever which is also a series on Netflix written by Mindy Kaling. Mm-hmm. I know that I've talked about her before and how much I love her. It's so good. It's like you know these teenagers but it's just really well done. I think it's only eight episodes. I could be wrong. It may be ten. I think it's maybe eight. But they're really quick. It's so sweet. So good. And you'll see a little appearance by Angela Kinsey. I didn't know she was <gasps> no in it. No way! Yeah, she's in it. Oh. Um, but it's it's so good. I highly recommend it. Jeff yeah. was watching, not really, but like he would even like kind of pay attention and laugh sometimes. So Is it really a limited fun. series or is it going to come back for a season two? Mm, I'm not sure. It's kind of tied up with the bow at the end. Yeah. So I could see it being limited. Yeah. But I'm not sure. Sometimes Netflix will make the distinction, like, Unorthodox is a limited series. I didn't pay attention. I don't know. Okay. But it's worth your time. It's so good. So yeah. cute. Lighthearted. It will give you all the feels, all the emotions. I love that. So, but I loved it. It's really I need good. something lighthearted to watch after, you know, my... Real Housewives of New York drama. Right, I'm I just know. kidding. That's it's, I mean, I hate show. to say that it's some of it's lighthearted, but there is some serious stuff that happens. Yeah, and it's got a lot of drama, but it's really sweet. Cute. I'll have to check it out for sure. Um, oh, and then for my podcasts, I'm still struggling to find something that's a series. I don't know that anything's out right now. Yeah, I'm just catching up with my TCO and Crime mm-hmm. Junkie. Same thing, and Office Ladies too. Mm-hmm. I'm still behind on them. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. And I listen to Criminal too. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Crime Junkie. Like yeah. just kind of all my series that I've been listening to. I don't have anything new. I don't either. Like it's, I feel like it's kind of all my same things that I listen to. So if you guys have any recommendations of ones that you have listened to and loved, let us know. For sure. I know because we were supposed to be at CrimeCon last weekend, so we would have gotten probably a lot of recommendations. Yeah, we were supposed to be at CrimeCon, and we were also supposed to see Patrick and Jillian from True Crime Obsessed. Which was going to start off the weekend, and it was Mm going to be the best, but COVID. But here we are. Here we are. Yep. Yeah. So today I'm going to kind of talk about a couple of things. It'll lead, I'm going to tell a story and then it'll lead into women that marry prisoners. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Which is a crazy phenomenon. It, it is. actually has a word that it you'll does, tell us about. Which I'm going to have to think about it before I say it, but we'll get there. <laughs> so I forgot about this story and I remember hearing about it sort of like in passing almost, mm-hmm. but the dateline was on recently. But I think it was on OWN. It wasn't like a new episode. Right. And I'm like, oh, I need to look into that because that is a great podcast idea or whatever. So um, I'm just going to read from this article that was a local article from Oklahoma. Ex-warden's wife sentenced to one year for assisting prisoners escape. Right? It's crazy. So on November 7th, 2011, the wife of a former Oklahoma warden was sentenced to one year in prison for helping a prisoner escape 17 years earlier. Bobby L. Parker, 49. My grandmother's name is Bobby. So... B-O-B-B-I? Well, Bob, my Bobby has an I-E. Oh, this I-E. Is, this yes. is B-O-B-B-I. <laughs> but that is very feminine, Bobby. Bobby. So Bobby L. Parker, 49, was married to Randy Parker, assistant warden at the Oklahoma State Reformatory, a medium security facility in Granite, when Randolph Franklin Dial escaped from the prison on August 30th, 1994. Bobby Parker disappeared as well. Nothing was heard of the pair until authorities acting on a tip 
that um, their story was aired on America's Most Wanted, and they were discovered them living as husband and wife in a mobile home on an isolated chicken ranch in Campton, Texas in 2005. Wow, that's crazy. Right, so they were there together for 10 years. 10 years? Yes. Wow. I guess I just didn't do the math quick enough. That is a long time. Right. So Parker claimed that Dial had drugged her, kidnapped her at knife point, and kept her as a hostage by threatening that his mob connections would kill her family if she fled. And then he confirmed that that was accurate. Hmm. Right? It's very interesting. But is that just a story that they both said, okay, if we ever get caught, this is what I'm going to say so that you don't get time. Because he was probably like, if I get caught, I still have to serve the sentence I was serving anyway. Right. Right. So it is what it is. But I don't want you to have to serve like however long for, you know, bringing me out of the big house. So after being captured, Dial returned to prison to serve out the life sentence for murder he was serving at the time of his escape. He died in prison prison of cancer in 2007 at age 62. To his dying day, he maintained that both he and Bobby Parker were telling the truth about him kidnapping her and holding her against her will. Regardless, she was charged with helping him escape. How long did she get? She only got, I think she got, I think it's like a year, but um, yeah, it'll, I'll, I'll get into it. I can't remember. I feel like she was sentenced to like 27 months, but I think only served like a year. Okay, that's, Yeah. So, according to prosecutors' versions of events, Parker met Dial and fell in love with him while they were working together in the prison's pottery program. So, I did a little bit of research, and mm-hmm. apparently, because I guess her husband was the warden, they lived kind of on property, mm-hmm. and they turned her garage into, like, a pottery studio, and this criminal had a um, background in, like, sculpting or something. So, they started, like, this art program, and he was able to go to their house And do art. That would be... So I think that reform programs are great. Like having programs in the prison system are really great. However, it would make me very uneasy that if somebody got out and knew exactly how to get to my home, because like they obviously know the route, even if they're brought like in a truck or something or brought over in a bus. Yeah, that's scary. Right. I don't know if I would do it in my garage. Yeah, so the program is based out of the garage of her house, which was located on the prison property. During her four-month trial, which included the testimony of over 80 witnesses and almost 800 pieces of evidence, the prosecution produced prisoner witnesses who testified that they saw Bobby Parker and Dial behaving inappropriately in the assistant warden's house where she, her husband, and her two young daughters lived. Wow. Right? Also... If you're serving a life sentence for murder, you get to go out, like you said, and like do some pottery, yeah. head up like a pottery project. Yeah, I off guess. Off campus. Right. So to speak. I just think that's weird. Well, yeah, like how long into his sentence, like how much good behavior did he have to have before he was given the clearance to right. go on this? Like, It just seems very risky. Yeah. I don't know. So during deliberations, the jury asked to travel to the prison to view the house. About two hours after returning from the trip, they returned a guilty verdict and recommended a one-year sentence. Although Parker faced up to 10 years in prison for helping a prisoner escape, Greer County District Judge Richard Darby accepted the jury's recommendation and sentenced her to a year. Proclaiming that she did not have a fair trial, defense attorney Garvin Isaacs vowed to appeal the verdict. I will never quit until Bobby Parker is a free woman. Well, in... A short 27 months, she will be. Right. We had overwhelming evidence of Bobby Parker's innocence. We're going to have another trial in this case. This case will be reversed on appeal. 
An alternate juror who did not help decide the case agreed, expressing surprise at the verdict. I thought Mr. Isaacs did a wonderful job. I think he proved she was kidnapped. In May 2012, however, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals dismissed Parker's appeal after um, denying her additional time to purchase a copy of the lengthy trial transcript, which was estimated to cost about $100,000. Wow. What? I didn't know they could charge for transcripts. I thought they were public record. Well, and also, why is it hundred grand? Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> right. It just doesn't make... When I read that, I was like, what? That yeah. doesn't make sense. The appellate court had declined to find Parker indigent, meaning she was responsible for the cost of the transcript. In the interim, Parker had been released from prison on April 5th, 2012, after serving about seven months. So now she went back to her husband mm-hmm. and lives with him, even though she's been gone for 10 months. Ten years. I've been sorry, ten years. So I did a little, I tried to find like some really good stuff. Like it was on Unsolved Mysteries because I mean this is way back. And it was on America's Most Wanted, which is how they found him. Uh-huh. And a couple of people were like, oh yeah, I remember her because I think she, I think they had like a chicken farm and he made her work or chicken house, you uh-huh. know, whatever. Right, he made right. her do the work. So I'm sure he was like typical, you know, guilty murderer, prisoner, manipulative, you know. And I'm sure that like... He made her believe that they were in love or whatever, and she helped him get out. And little Stockholm syndrome yeah, exactly. going on a little. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's really sad because, it, like, it said in another article I read that like she called, um, like, her sister in law was like, "Just tell my kids I'm okay," <gasps> but like would never like. It was very weird. How often did she do that? Not only a couple of times. Oh like, wow. Initially. So it was just very strange, but I tried to find her, like, on social media or whatever, and her kids, I couldn't find them. Hmm. Uh, do you know, I mean, is she is she even still alive? I don't know. I think she is. Because in 2011, she was 49. Oh, think, okay. Then, yeah, alive. then she's, yeah, yeah, then she's still, like, right. Yeah. And young. her kids, I mean, they're older, but yeah. Right. I did see there's a book on Amazon, In the Wind, the story of Randolph Dial and Bobby Parker. I had three ratings, four stars. <laughs> I think it was kind of a local effort, it seemed like. It looked, I don't yeah, know. It didn't yeah. look like I needed to download it today or anything. Right. But It'll I don't there. know. I just, it makes me wonder, did she, but, and you always hear like these people that are kidnapped and they have all these opportunities to escape and they don't because they're abused mm-hmm. or, you know, she's thinking this whole time that he's going to harm her family. Mm-hmm. But it's like not one of those times you couldn't say something. Mm-hmm. But I think that it all goes back to like, you know, these abusive situations. There's a book I read. Um, oh gosh, I'm not, I shouldn't have even brought this up cause I know I'm not going to remember the name of it, but basically it was about Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. and like this lady ends up falling in love with her captor. Right. And like actually as the reader, I was like, no, so no, really I read that book. Love. I read that and book she gets where, pregnant. He, where he kidnapped her to the Spoiler woods. Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> I can't remember the name of that book though. It's so good. It's, I read um, it like a year or two ago. Yeah. Shoot. We got to get back to you on that because it's worth reading even though we've totally spoiled it. Right. I told, I told you but, the end of it. But yeah, she totally like falls, ends up falling in love with her. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's so good. And I was like, no, they're in love. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good though. Shoot. I'll have to look. I'll look on my Kindle app. I can like see the cover of it too. I read it as well. I know exactly what you're talking about. At the beginning of the next episode, we'll tell you guys what it is. So stay yeah, tuned. Stay tuned. That makes you keep listening. So now I was going to share this article. I think it was like, 
it's either oxygen or E or something. Because mm-hmm. I was like, okay, now we can think about like these women that marry murderers. And it's fascinating to me. It is fascinating. I mean, baffling, for one. Well, I just don't really, I mean, like, to each their own, I don't really understand the appeal because they're not going anywhere. No. Like, there's no hope that you're ever going to be able to be together unless they have, like, an appeal coming up, maybe. Well, it talks about that in in this article as to why maybe they're attracted to that scenario. Because they can't be running around on you? Well, because they're, they're controlling it. Oh, oh, okay. It's very interesting. So this is an article like True Crime Week. So an unexpected place to find love, prison. But it actually happens more often than you might expect. And it turns out there is actually a word and condition for having an attraction to someone behind bars. And it's called, oh shoot. Hi, shoot. Natalie, help me. Hybristophilia. Hybristophilia, yeah. Hybristophilia, sorry. A phenomenon that's played out in and because of the media over the years and was most recently seen in Making a Murderer Part 2, which I'm very disappointed to report I never watched, even though I was obsessed with the first one. Do you think that, I remember your obsession with the first one, and yeah, do you think bad. the reason that you haven't delved into the second is because you're just not emotionally ready to have that level of Well, and it's kind of like a sequel. What if it's not as good? Oh, it is. I'm here okay. to tell you it is. Okay. Well, yeah. I need it on my quarantine list of things to do. Yeah, you need to. Yeah. It's really good. Okay. It's, okay, it's maybe not as good as the first mm-hmm. um, because you're kind of, in the first, like you're hearing the story for the first time. Right. It's good, though. It's just a different good. Okay. Yeah, I'm disappointed in myself that I haven't watched it. Didn't you have a t-shirt that said free Stephen I, Avery? I got one for Jeff. <laughs> I don't know where it is. I need to steal it from him. Yeah. I remember, I told you, I think I talked about this on another episode where I like got in an argument with the public's checkout lady over my <laughs> yeah, Google you magazine. T- you told me what? about that. Why? I don't know if you ever told that story on air. Yeah, it's embarrassing. But that's... She was like, I mean, he's guilty, but I was like, have you watched it? She said no. I was like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And then I was like, dial it down. Like, doesn't matter. Then you're not allowed to have an opinion. Right. I'm in Publix. Like, you know, whatever. It was dumb. Okay. So, per Psychology Today, sexologist and professor John Money first defined hybristophilia as a sexual paraphilia in which a person gets sexual arousal and pleasure from having a partner who is known to have committed an outrage or crime, such as rape, murder, or armed robbery. This could be why a notorious serial killer like Ted Bundy ended up married and becoming a father after committing at least 30 murders, or why both of the Menendez brothers are currently happily married despite being in prison for almost 30 years. Um, that's disturbing because right? I didn't know that Ted Bundy was allowed to have meetings with his wife. I thought you could only have, um, cause there's a word for it. I just can't think of it. Conjugal. Yeah. Conjugal visits. I thought you could only have those if you were married prior. Well, and you're not supposed to have them either when you're on death row. <laughs> Did you not watch the Zac Efron special? The Ted Bundy one? Okay. I did. I didn't care that much for it. So I actually... Ended up falling asleep. Like, so they showed their version of, of what they think happened. That he paid off the guard. And then him and his wife like do it by the Coke machine. And oh, that's when she gets pregnant. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. But we don't know. That would make sense though if mm-hmm. he wasn't like legally having conjugal visits. Right. Huh. Okay. Continue. I'm sure that Sorry. he like manipulated somebody. So, oh, surprise, surprise. Right. Can't believe it. For Sheila Eisenberg who interviewed female. Gosh, I cannot say. This word does not... High bristophilia. High bristophiliacs for her book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill. One of the reasons for choosing to be with a man in prison is the fantasy element of it all, along with having control. 
If you are in a relationship with a man behind bars for life or a man on death row, then you have a lot of control over the relationship, she wrote. You can decide when to make the visit, when to accept the phone call, or if you will accept the phone call. And you are the man's primary link with the outside world. So as you can clearly see, it's a very powerful position to be in. Powerful or not, it does not sound appealing to me. <laughs> right. Still, it just doesn't sound that fun to me. Right. Dr. Michael Aaron, a sex therapist and the author Modern Sexuality, told Vice, so there's two parts to hybistrophilia. There's that taboo danger part to it, and there's this hyper-masculine aggressive part that can be very appealing to some women. Mm. Basically, some women are able to act out their fantasies with these dangerous men in a safe, controlled environment as part of the draw for them is the alpha male or bad boy nature of the imprisoned man. It's a quality that even non-hibistrophiliacs can be drawn to. What? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. In ways that our culture really does not want to admit, the serial killer is a figure that draws us, that fascinates us in a more positive sense. I, I mean, I do agree with that, not, yeah. but not in a positive way. Well, not where I want to marry them or date them. Right. Where I want to sit on a podcast and talk about how crazy they are. Right. <laughs> I know. So then it says, just think of the true crime wave that has taken over virtually every form of pop culture since the hit podcast serial introduced the world to Adnan Syed. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, here we are. Adnan was not a serial killer, though. No, he didn't do it. <laughs> he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> in 2014, and Netflix's Making a Murderer debuted in 2015. So that was like the big hit then. Right. And then in 2017, the TV network Oxygen completely rebranded to become a completely crime-focused destination. Well, and let's be fair. Before, all Oxygen was playing with Snapped anyway. So right. exactly. <laughs> you can always count on an episode of Snapped. So whether they like to admit it or not, people are interested in the dark details that make us just a little afraid to turn off the light at night. It's just that some take their interest in the alleged killer at the center of it all to another psychological level. Another major factor in these groupy murder relationships, the media circus of it all, with the coverage of the cases and trials often being the driving force, these women reaching out to connect with the prisoners in the first place. They like the spotlight. Mm -hmm. You know, they like the drama. So, and ironically, Netflix gave viewers a front row seat to that aspect of these relationships in Making a Murderer Part 2, with the docuseries being the catalyst for a new romance for Stephen Avery, a man claiming he is wrongfully accused of murdering Teresa Halbach. He's currently serving a life sentence after being convicted in 2007. Part 1 introduced us to several of Avery's girlfriends, including former fiancé, now good friend, Sandra Greenman. But in the three-year gap between the two seasons, his love life had played out in the tabloids. Can you imagine? Like, you're in prison, and you've got, like, this love life going on? After splitting from Sandra, Stephen began dating Lynn Hartman, who was previously married to a police officer before she began writing to Avery in prison to offer some kind of support. She explained during her brief appearance in Part 2, I wanted to be a part of it. Avery acknowledged all of the attention he was receiving from female fans when talking about his relationship with Hartman. When you're involved with me, you get a lot of this attention and all this other stuff, and I asked her about that sometimes, he explained in the fourth episode. I just tell her, don't worry about what everybody's saying on the internet. Sample of what they are saying, Stephen is the world's strangest sex symbol. Oh, God. <laughs> there's a I lot of things. That. Yeah, there's a lot of things I would call Stephen Avery, but sex symbol is not one of them. No. So the couple got engaged before their first in-person encounter, and Hartman soon appeared on Dr. Phil to discuss their relationship, with Avery even calling in to surprise Hartman, which he later called a setup. 
A few days after they filmed the episode, the couple's engagement abruptly ended, with Hartman sending the breakup note she wrote Avery to the media, along with posing in the dress she bought for their wedding in a televised interview. During the interview with Inside Edition, she said she feared for her life. How? He's in prison. Right? I don't know if other women are threatening her. (laughs) Maybe because he's such a hot ticket. Right, he's the strange (laughs) So in a Facebook post by his former girlfriend, Avery called Hartman a gold digger and claimed she was only with him to make money from appearances. Yeah, they go over that a lot in part two that you'll watch. I'm going to watch it. (laughs) I'm going to. But Avery is far from the first inmate to get engaged or married or attract admirers while behind bars. Arguably one of the most infamous mass murderers to develop a cult following after his conviction was cult leader Charles Manson. Yeah. Eesh. Ugh. He so gives me the creeps. Gross. I can't even look at his picture. In 1971, Manson was convicted of masterminding the brutal killings of actress Sharon Tate and six others, which were acted out by his devoted Manson family followers, with most being young females. Young women with shaved heads flocked to the courthouse during his trial to conduct a 24-hour vigil. And after Manson carved an X on his forehead, many of the followers did the same. Ugh. I thought it was a swastika, it was a swastika symbol. Yeah, they have an X on here. I think that was his tattoo, was a swastika. But oh. I wonder if he did like a carved X first, or maybe he wanted it to be a swastika. I don't know. Oh. Creeper. Yeah. He's gross. Rolling Stone once called him the most dangerous man alive when they put him on a 1970 cover, with Manson's eerie magnetism turning him into a pop culture icon. Rock stars have covered the wannabe musician's songs. Manson memorabilia is sold. Um, Countless movies, TV shows, and books have been created with the Manson family serving as their inspiration. Yeah, creepy. It's really gross and creepy. During his time in prison, he reportedly received an average of four fan letters a day. And during one parole hearing in the late 80s, there were about 40 satanic worshipers dressed in black outside the prison chanting for his release. Oh my gosh, that's so scary. Ugh. Then there's these young people today who are intrigued by his mystique since he's America's most famous criminal, but they don't know what he's really about, what he really did. Manson obtained a marriage license in 2014 to wed Afton Elaine Burton, a 26-year-old admirer who had been visiting him for nine years. 26? For nine years? Good grief. She was so young when she started. Yeah, she would have been 16? Or 20, or 20, ugh, 15 or 16? Yeah, it's disgusting. That is The crazy. two never ended up swapping vows before Manson died in November 2017 at the age of 83. Ew. Ew, what, ew, what is Afton Elaine Burton doing now? Yeah. Ugh. But one of his Manson family members also found love behind bars as Susan Atkins, known as Sexy Sadie within the cult, married twice while serving her life sentence before dying in 2009. She had been with her second husband, James Whitehouse, who represented her during two parole hearings for 21 years before passing away. Wow. While his total number of victims will likely never be known, Ted Bundy, one of the country's most famous serial killers, is responsible for the murder of at least 30 women between 1973 and 1978, with his killing spree spanning seven states. Bundy was eventually turned in by his long-term girlfriend, Elizabeth. But it was another woman who briefly dated him before his arrest that would go on to become his wife, Carol Ann Boone, his former co-worker at the Washington State Department of Emergency Service, who was a twice-divorced single mother when she and Bundy connected. I do remember that from the Zac Efron yeah. series. Mm-hmm. Vaguely. Because it's been like a year since I watched yeah, it. I watched it a while ago, too. After allegedly helping him escape prison in 1977, the two ended up getting married in a way no one saw coming. 
Serving as his own defense attorney, Bundy was questioning Boone, serving as a character witness on the stand when he proposed to her in what was later revealed to be an orchestrated event. See, that was another thing that, I I mean, there's many reasons to hate Ted Bundy, but he used, like, his trial for stunts like that. Yeah, exactly. Which, so unacceptable. Like, people lost their lives. You're such a dick. I know. He made sure a notary public was in the courtroom to witness the nuptials. The couple had previously been denied the request to get married at the jail. We didn't do this for your benefit, Bundy told the jury after. It was the only chance to be in the same room together where the right words could be said. It was something between she and I. Later that day, the jury recommended the death penalty for the murder of Kimberly Leaf. Like most death row inmates, Bundy was not permitted conjugal visits, which is why Boone revealing she had a daughter in 1982 and naming the infamous murderer as the father was so shocking and led to many rumors about how they conceived their daughter, Rose. It's nobody's business, Boone said. I don't have to explain anything about anyone to anybody. And she never did, as Boone and their daughter, Rose, reportedly changed their names and haven't spoken out or really been seen since his execution in 1989, with Boone not visiting her husband in the last two years of his life. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I tried to find the daughter because I swear at work I heard a rumor. I don't remember who I heard this from or if I'm making this up that, like, she lives in Georgia. Hmm. And that she might be a nurse. (laughs) But, like, I don't know. I don't want to spread that. But I swear somebody told me that. That would be crazy. Right. But but I'm sure. You did some solid Google searches and you didn't find any? solid Googs and, like. I think they changed their names. I don't know where they live. They've been supposedly to Washington, Florida. You know, I would want to protect myself, too. She's probably a normal person and has to deal with that being her dad. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I don't know if this is true either, but, like, if they applied for witness protection program, like, they might even actually get it. Right. You know? As they should. Because they're a creeper. Yeah, Boone wasn't the only woman seemingly under Bundy's spell during the time of his trial as E. True Hollywood story once covered his gruesome killing spree and the surprising response he received, with some groupies even showing up at the courthouse dressed as his victims. <gasps> Ladies! That is so Ooh, disrespectful. That got me going. Yeah, oh that's disgusting. Gosh. Disgusting. What's wrong with people? I know. Ted's mail was as, was as strange as anybody's mail could be. He got marriage proposals. Stephen Michaud, co-author of Ted Bundy Conversations with Killers, said in the special, lots and lots of women sent him pictures. Some sent him nude pictures. Ew. Ew. One of those groupies was Shirley Joyce Book, who ended up marrying Kenneth Bianchi, one of the two Hillside Stranglers in 1989, after initially having her sights set on Bundy. During his trial years earlier, Bianchi was able to convince one admirer to lie on the stand for him. But that woman, Veronica Compton, took her devotion to another level when she con- when she was convicted of attempting to strangle a woman. Why? So it would seem like the real Hillside Strangler was still at large. Oh my gosh. That is a whole nother level of crazy. Right, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. Write that down. Right. Keep her name. Veronica. Right. So, um, if you're someone who complains about dating being impossible, just know that Lyle Menendez has been married twice since being in prison for the 1989 murder of his parents, along with his brother, Eric Menendez. Did you ever watch um, the Menendez murders? I did, but I listened to the TCO. Same. I actually didn't watch it. I just listened to Patrick and Jillian Mm -hmm. talk about it. And actually, oh, like, they may have done it, but I also feel really bad for them. I know. It's, it makes you, yeah. Do I want to marry them? No. No. But I still feel a little bad for them because I think their dad abused them. Right. 
It's crazy. Lyle and Erickson had met after she wrote to him following the brother's first murder trial in 1993, which was televised. In 1993, Lyle started a relationship with former model Anna Erickson when she began writing to him after the first murder trial and felt bad for him when it seemed his brother was receiving more letters than he was. I am a fabulous letter writer, she told people in 96, <laughs> revealing her first letter. was just a little note saying, like, hang tough. That's not fabulous. Okay. Yeah. What's fabulous about that? Right. The two eventually married in 1996 with their nuptials conducted over speakerphone by a judge. But by 2001, the couple had divorced after Erickson discovered he had been exchanging letters with another woman. <gasps> He's cheating from prison. How, like, <laughs> how? My question would be how? You're in there with a bunch of guys and you're still cheating on me? Like, get right. out of here. Right. And in 2003, Lyle wed Rebecca Sneed, a magazine editor in the visiting area of his prison. And the two are still married. Sneed visits her husband every weekend. This part got me. I'm like, seriously. Our interaction tends to be very free of distractions, and we probably have more intimate conversations than most married spouses do who are distracted by life's events, Lyle told people in a rare interview. There's a lot I can say about that. <laughs> but the very first I'm going to say is I don't know how distracting it is when there's like 20 other people in the room right. with you. First right? off. Yep. We try and talk on the phone every day, sometimes several times a day. I have a very steady, involved marriage, and that helps sustain me and brings a lot of peace and joy. It's a counter to the unpredictable, very stressful environment here. Well, I mean, she's crazy. Obviously, yeah. that's why with him. His brother Eric also married an admirer after their 1996 conviction. Tammy Ruth Sockerman was married when she began writing to the older Menendez brother in 1993 after watching the trial that riveted the nation. They continued to write each other once a month. The pen pals finally met in person for the first time in 97 and eventually married in 99 with the Twinkie serving as their wedding cake. <laughs> this writer is too much. Oh my gosh. Too much. Literally out of a vending machine. <laughs> that is funny. Right? Awesome. I love that little tidbit. Yeah, the Twinkie. Sockerman wrote a self-published book in 2005 about their relationship called They Said We'd Never Make It, revealing intimate details about their marriage, including that she didn't get along with his brother's wife, Rebecca Sneed, who had briefly lived with her. The two have never been allowed any conjugal visits, <laughs> with Sockerman telling people, not having sex in my life is difficult, but it's not a problem for me. I have to be emotionally attached, and I'm emotionally attached to Eric. I mean, that's a, that is what you <laughs> signed up for. Right. So. You know that, yeah. For Eric, his wife's love was a major step in my choosing life, he told people. Having someone who loves you unconditionally, who you can be completely open with, is good for anybody. To know that this person loves me as I am. I don't know. Do you think there's like a club of all these women that like... There must be. They must. They honestly must be a support system. And I guess they know each other really well because like those two women lived together for a <laughs> right. while. They were roomies. <laughs> Right. She didn't like her. But, but <laughs> she didn't even like her. Okay, here we got another one. Known as the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez was sentenced to death and raping um, and murdering 13 women in the mid-1980s with the national publicity surrounding his trial resulting in many female admirers. In 1985, Doreen Loy, a reporter who had, been, who had seen his mugshot on TV, had begun writing over 70 letters to Ramirez. The two eventually married in 1996. Per the New York Times, she purchased her new husband a platinum wedding band because he told her, Satanists don't wear gold. 
Platinum? It's so expensive. <laughs> right? Platinum is really expensive. And can you wear a wedding band in prison? No, I don't think they can wear jewelry. Ugh. So, like, so what? You, like, gave it to him and then now it sits, like, in his locker when right. he will never get out of prison? Right. He's kind. He's funny. He's charming. I think he's a really great person. He's my best friend. He's my buddy. I just believe in him completely. In my opinion, there was far more evidence to convict O.J. Simpson. You're not wrong about that. <laughs> right. This, me and this girl do do agree on one thing. Right. He talked you into platinum, but you write about O.J. Following his death due to blood cancer in 2003, a writer for the Los Angeles Times recounted his experience with a couple when he was interviewing another inmate at the prison Ramirez was held in. The writer noted they would often nuzzle while eating vending machine snacks when Loy would visit her husband four times a week, packing breath mints so she could, quote, be able to kiss with confidence. I didn't know that they were allowed to even touch. I think they can. I mean, I don't know because I've never actually visited anybody in prison. Me either. However, I did not think, I thought it was a rule you can't touch. Yeah, I don't think you can touch. Let All alone the shows, kiss. it's like no touching, no touching. Right. I mean, I've watched some Orange is the New Black. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we're talking about. Right. Lloyd's family was reportedly unhappy with the relationship, which she explained away with a roll of her eyes saying, hometown, hometown girl makes bad. <laughs> But after a court rule that Ramirez was no longer allowed personal visits in 2010, it seems the couple may have quietly separated, and Loy has remained out of the public eye since his death. So, I wonder what happened in prison that he wasn't allowed to have visitors anymore. Like Maybe what somebody he did. found out he was kissing people. Maybe, and <laughs> snuggling while eating Doritos. Right, Twinkies. <laughs> oh. But it's not always groupies that marry alleged murderers. It's also their lawyers, which this... It was really disturbing to me. Oh, yeah. While on death row, after being convicted of killing three women in Florida while working at a carnival, Oscar Ray Bolin married Rosalie Martinez, a member of his legal defense team. That's crazy. Martinez left her husband and gave up primary custody of their four children for Bolin, and the two remarried until he was executed in January 2016. Wow. Right? Talk about a conflict of interest. I never, never, ever thought for a second that he was guilty of those three murders, she said during a 2020 special on their unique relationship. Martinez would visit Bolin twice a week, but the two were never able to consummate their marriage, expressing their love through letters. I think the art of lovemaking is probably in these cards, she said. But what happens when a man you marry while he's in prison eventually finds himself on the other side of the bars? For Carol Spandoni, it meant tragedy. Spandoni met and married Philip Carl Jablonski, a serial killer in 1982, while he was serving 12 years in prison, murdering the mother of his child. A year after he was released from prison in 1990, Jablonski murdered Spandoni and her mother, whom he also sexually assaulted. We went on to kill two other women before um, being apprehended a few days later, and he's currently on death row. Yikes. Ew. For these couples who found love and marriage through a glass partition, it seems their vows should have included till death brings us together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, that's very clever. So anyway, yeah, I found that article and I'm like, there's so many of these women. So many. And probably more that just wasn't oh, covered. Yeah, Those sure. were like the big, I mean, because the Menendez murders yeah. are super big and the Ted Bundy, obviously. People. So I actually listened to a criminal episode that kind of like segues from your first story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's criminal episode 121 and it's called Off Leash. And it's basically about Toby Dore. 
Um, so she, she had like this program where she would bring dogs into the prison system Mm -hmm. so that the dogs could get like rehabilitated and then they could get, um, like adopted from families, which is a great idea. For sure. So all of the prisoners like had their dogs that they worked with and John Maynard was this guy who like applied for the dog rehabilitation program and like got into it or whatever and Toby snuck him out in a dog crate. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they like, um, I think spent like a week on the run and um, it ended in a 60 mile police chase. And then she spent like 27 months in prison. Um, but listen to criminal episode 121 off leash. It's really, really good. And it goes, and Toby, like the actual lady um is like interviewed oh, for wow. the whole thing yeah does she like admit that like she was manipulated or does she um, see any fault with what she did yes she does okay i like she says a little bit that she was manipulated but she's also like i'm not going to lie to you like i really thought i loved him so she's really honest in it which i was like oh wow like i appreciate it yeah, as a for listener sure. Um, and she also talks about the dog program, which I thought was really cool. Um, but it's a really good episode. So y'all should listen to that. Yeah. If you're looking for something to listen to. And I definitely need stuff. Okay. Where can they find us on social media? Uh, Quirks and Crime Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and then you can shoot us an email, quirksandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Let us know where you're listening from. Let us know what we should drink, what we should listen to. We need all the recommendations. Yes. We have a lot of time. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks. Bye.